0: Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schram and occasional guest as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host, Well, hey there, my friends, and welcome into another episode of The Winsome Creationist. Very excited in this episode to share with you my biggest takeaways and some of the important notes that I took from attending the ninth International Conference on Creationism. This was in Cedarville, Ohio. It's the first year that it has been in its new location at Cedarville University, and it's the first time that I ever got to go. Now, full disclosure, I did not go to the full conference and there's so much that I missed out on. And so everything that I'm getting ready to share with you literally was just taken away from conversations that I had while I was there and the public talks that were held on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday night there in the auditorium. And it was a fantastic time. It was great to meet up with a lot of people that I have been friends with and Um, interacted with for many, many years now. It was just so great to be able to be there among those people and um, just people really passionate about the Lord, passionate about God's world and about creation and seeing the researchers there kind of in their element doing the research conference thing. It was really great and I was uh, uh, blessed and such a privilege to be able to go. So what I want to do is talk through some of my notes. I want to give you just a, a brief sketch of the notes that I took. Um and then I'm going to give you my three big takeaways and we'll finish up for this particular episode, okay? So, what the conference was structured like, by the way, um they have this every 5 years and uh so the next one um I believe is going to be in 2028. I think that's the plan. And so definitely start thinking and planning now about uh about being able to go to that. But um What's interesting is that the public talks, the way that they were held, is basically it's a state of creation research that is given in these different areas. And so we heard things on astronomy and chemistry and uh, paleontology and archaeology and even immunology. Uh, Really crazy some of the different things that we got to hear, and it was really great. And so uh, I want to walk through some of my notes with you here and just talk about them at a very, very high level. Uh, just some things that stuck out and that I thought were very interesting. All right, so let's dive right in. So Dr. Bill Barrick opened up the conference and he, uh, and rightly so, was talking about theology. Okay, so theology and biblical studies and the place that really this needs to uh, play, the role it needs to play as we're doing science. Remember, this is a science conference Um, And it started out with theology and biblical studies. And I think that's exactly the right order of things. And Dr. Barrick was very, very uh, adamant about placing an emphasis on theological accuracy. And this for me was very welcome and very appreciated. Again, I am a biblical studies guy more than anything else. Um, And um, even though I'm not an expert, um, I definitely am, am most interested in the biblical studies angle of this and making sure that everything is clear and everything is right. It's uh it's really interesting how in the past few years, uh, there has definitely been a sort of um, return and I would say sort of an uprising of making sure that there is biblical and theological accuracy going on when we're doing our work. And that needs to be even greater and even more pronounced. And it's exciting to see folks who are Um, Up and coming in those ranks and and learning theology and studying at some really great seminaries and um, holding to, even though they are experts in Hebrew and Semitic studies, uh, they hold to this traditional view of the age of the earth and of creation. And again, you might think that, well, we have all the answers here, right? Because uh, you know, creationists like part of what we believe is that for thousands of years, like the the church has had this. Right. It's only with the introduction of modern science that the church has kind of started to go astray. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, now, it is very true, okay, that uh, the traditional Jewish and Christian interpretation, uh, even among the church fathers and going way back, as long as we're not cherry-picking quotes from them, um, we, we can look and see that they held beliefs that are very similar to what a just modern young age creationist would believe in terms of history and actually being able to um, do some calculations to come to a reasonable age of the earth. Okay, so that's not very controversial. But uh, Hebrew and Semitic studies and biblical studies in, in general has been developing and has been making um, you know, in, inroads and in, in raising new questions that need to be dealt with and understood from a creationist uh, framework. And we want to make sure that we are using expert analysis whenever we are engaging science um, in theology, okay? We want to make sure that we're starting with biblical studies, um, starting with theology, making sure that we're good to go there. Do- Dr. Baric, um went, it took a long time to kind of set up this, um, uh, just one example of a text that often gets interpreted and taken out of context by creation uh, ministries who are well-meaning, uh, but they're kind of hijacking words that Jesus is saying for their own purposes, we're not going to go all into it, but essentially it was the um it was the the conversation between Jesus and I want to say it was Nicodemus going back and forth about well, if I've told you earthly things, um and you don't believe them, how am I supposed to tell you spiritual things, and you believe them like creation ministry is trying to make that about uh, you know earthly things like the flood and you know the 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 age of the earth and things like that which is not an accurate use of that passage, okay that's hijacking. Jesus's theological teaching. And Dr. Barrick did a great job going through that. That's just one example. So scientists ought to be consulting Bible scholars, not the other way around. And it's going to be imperative that Bible scholars are brought in and are actually reviewing research papers and even blog posts and whatever before they are sent out for publication. It's very, very important that we get this right. Okay, the next observation uh, comes from the uh, world of geology. Okay, the world of geology. One thing I noticed, and this has been a popular topic even on some creationist podcasts recently as well. There was a four-hour panel there at the ICC that I did not even get to attend uh, on this, and it sounds like I probably would have gone to sleep during it. So I'm kind of glad that I uh, I, I didn't attend that. But it was a four-hour uh, discussion on the flood boundaries and. That is a again a big topic. It's been a big topic for a long time. There are different people on different sides of this, and it's actually a rather uh, heated uh, debate sometimes. And so, it's still an unsettled matter within creationism. And um, the the thought was that basically we're going to need to get somewhere with this pretty soon. Like we're we're, we're going to need to go ahead and establish some sort of uh, consensus and some sort of overarching confidence on this, so that. Um, the archaeologists and the biologists can sort of move on and actually get some of their research and work done because um, especially early speciation and those sorts of things rely heavily on where you place that flood boundary. Like there are tons of implications for uh, biology and paleontology and even archaeology, uh, depending on where you put that um, flood, post-flood boundary. And so it's going to be very important to start nailing some of that information down. And then on the other side, there's a lot of work that still has to be done on the pre-flood uh, world and the creation uh, week, even. So, for example, the, the those pre-Cambrian layers, uh, as they're called, make up seventy percent of the rock record. Okay, so in other words, everything that uh, would be considered basically pre-flood uh, rocks, like that, is seventy percent of the rock record, and we have some rocks and minerals that are found only in those layers, and the question is, why, right, why, what's going on with that, what purposes could that have served, what, what, we have no research almost on this, so we have a lot of work to do in that area, so understanding the pre-flood rock record is something that is going to need to be done, and that's going to tie into something else that uh, will come up soon with paleontology as well, okay, Dr. Russ Humphreys, man, he I, the only way I could describe this, okay, listening to him talk, the only way I could describe this is either he is a huge idiot or I am a huge idiot. <laughs> and I'm sorry to be crass. Uh, obviously, I don't think he's a huge idiot. What I meant by that is just that he's so smart, right? He is so intelligent. He's thinking big. He's asking really big questions. He had us laughing um, because at one point he's, he's you know he's just going through his list of things that you know, he thinks, you know, the young guys up and coming need to start working on. And, you know, of course, he, he lists, you know, uh, solving the nature of time, you know, as 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 one of them. And uh, there were there were two or three others that were almost that that big a question. And it's like, what what's going on? Um, Very smart guy. He thinks very big. And um, it's very obvious that if, if we can have somebody else who's asking those big questions and doing that sort of work to help us come to a more. I guess the way I would put it is a more holistic understanding of cosmology and the, even the way the world works from a creationist perspective is just really, um, really fantastic. I, I wouldn't necessarily say like a theory of everything. That's not what I'm going for here. Uh, but just understanding some of those big questions and those questions being asked by a creationist will lead to some interesting insights that uh, those questions being asked and explored by a non-creationist. Uh, would. And so it's really exciting to think about. So lots of potential exploration there. He talked about this concept of like a, a wheel of, of time, which I thought was kind of funny given the, uh, the fiction series that you might be familiar with called A Wheel of Time. Um, you know, just positing, well, what if time kind of works like a, a wheel? I and mean, what does that mean for the past and the future? Are we experiencing everything all at the same time? I mean, some really, some really crazy stuff that was very hard to understand. Um, and so, uh, but, but so fascinating and, and cool to hear people asking those sorts of questions. All right, Dr. Joe Francis talked about the immune system. And this was a fascinating, um, uh, a fascinating talk where he just went through so many different examples of how our uh, immune system is protecting us and, and where, where even crazy things like parasites and viruses and all that, like how does all of that fit within God's good design? One of the things he said is that our immune system is a fantastic example of overdesign. And this concept of overdesign is is also really interesting. It's it's the idea that uh, humans are not merely able to survive, but to thrive. And it seems that evolution, in the way that it's um, you know traditionally thought of, uh, would do little more than give us the ability to actually survive, not to thrive. And so, for example, in engineering uh, talk, there is a lot of um, it's like looking at the mobility, for example, in, in your hands we have the ability to do with our hands um, activities that go far beyond what would be evolutionarily uh, required or uh, necessary, and even that, some of that that leads to being able to compose the musical pieces that we can and things of that nature. Um, it's like we don't, we don't have to be able to do this stuff, and, and yet we can. So there are lots of examples in nature of overdesign, and Dr. Francis was saying that the immune system is a perfect example of that. It is designed to do far more than beyond what we would need to do, just to simply survive. Some new research also seems to suggest that your gut microbiome, which I'm kind of interested in because I'm big into the idea of diet, and um, there's a lot of talk, which we know very little about, but there's a lot of talk into how your gut microbiome affects the rest of your body. And Dr. Francis was saying that there is um, some new research and evidence showing that your microbiome actually communicates with your central nervous system. And so, uh, again, uh, just a lot of how your A lot of even how you're feeling on a given day or your ability to react to certain things and the way you sleep and just all kinds of stuff um, is actually affected by your gut microbiome, which is um, very much affected by how and what you eat. So that's kind of a very, very interesting thing uh, talking about the immune system. All right, next on to archaeology. Now, this was Dr. Doug Petrovich, and Dr. Petrovich is a joy to listen to. His zeal for the Lord is very apparent. And the work that he has done, he's got a couple books, and so I would invite you to go to Amazon and just type in Doug Petrovich, and I'm sure his books will come up there. And um I think you should read them. I think you should read them. And uh, one of the things I like about Dr. Petrovich is, um, he is highly regarded outside of the creationist community as well. Now there's a uh, uh, let me just caveat in general here, okay, because and this is going to tie into something I'll say about one of my takeaways, but um in general, the creationist community, right? Like when you're at a conference like this, you have to understand this is this is not solely people who are being recognized by the other people that are there, okay? Most of the um scientists who were presenting, um even even just in the public talks that I uh went to, like they worked a full career and were highly regarded by their colleagues. In work that was in line with the subject matter expertise that they have. Okay. So there were geologists who were employed by oil companies for 30 plus years, right? There were astronomers who taught in secular universities for 30 plus years, right? There were people who were involved in the creation of mechanisms that are used in genetics work widely today and have published peer-reviewed scientific journal papers many of them um, dealing with those subjects and are leaders and thought leaders in in their field okay and so I think this is a misunderstanding that a lot of people have it's not like you know the creationists are just random people who work for these ministries and stuff and they basically faked their way through a doctorate at a school and now they went to work for a creation ministry and that's what they're doing no they're actual subject matter experts in what they do have been recognized as such and are bringing that subject matter expertise into their research as a passionate bible believer and creationist. And Dr. Petrovich is just another one of those. He just he was the first one that really just made me think about this. Um he is another one of those that is widely regarded by others in uh, across the breadth of literature for his expertise in archaeology. Super smart guy. And some of what he was talking about was just Fantastic. I mean, he took us through many different examples of of essentially um, ancient artifacts that have inscriptions on them that show that the Hebrews were around earlier than most um, want to admit that they were, and the most think that they were in order to make the timelines work out right with the biblical timing of the sojourn and the Exodus and even the conquests of Joshua. And so we have basically a ton of archaeological evidence pointing. Uh, which, when I say a ton, I mean you got to understand, like. In ancient standards, like if we have five things, that's pretty amazing. That's like really amazing. That's a ton, right? Um, uh, because it's very hard to get any evidence for anything archaeologically. So it's just incredible that we have what we have, um, pointing to a very early Hebrew presence, like fourteen four. Uh, excuse me, fourteen forty six B C. Possibly even a little bit earlier. Um, which he made the point that a literal interpretation of First Kings six one requires, and that talks about how long the um. Uh, Israelites were in Egypt, et cetera. So you can go check all of that out, and um, it's really fascinating stuff. So let's move into astronomy. So we were below the ground, uh, you know, centuries below the ground, so let's move up into the stars. One of the big questions, and this was Dr. Danny Faulkner who did this presentation, um, one of the big questions here is how do we separate stellar structure from stellar evolution? And so one of the reasons motivating this is, um, uh, again, as it relates to the different areas that could be studied, which is basically the solar system, the stars, and then cosmology. Um, Cosmology has probably gotten the most attention from creationists in recent years. And we know quite a bit about the solar system, obviously, but we could stand to have some more information. Um, But Dr. Faulkner seems to think that stars and galaxies are really where a lot of work could be uh, done because creationists have not spent very much time on that at all. And of course, biblically, we don't have much to go on. We basically have God saying, and he made the stars also. And so, um, it was nice the way that he talked about this and presented this is basically like, well, we couldn't see this as a constraint, but we could also see this as an opportunity, right? Um... Yes, the Bible has lots of information. Like you know, there are multiple chapters dedicated to the flood, so that the the uh, geologists, you know, have just a lot of information to work on. But that means they're also constrained, and those constraints have led to lots of disagreement, and you know, the research taking a little bit longer than maybe they wanted to. And so it it's clear to see how those constraints could actually make the job more difficult. We don't have a lot of those constraints in astronomy, and so Dr. Faulkner seems to think that a lot of room is there for work to be done on stars and coming up with some sort of theory to replace the model of um, stellar evolution. Like, that is is something that is going to need to take place because we don't really have a good answer in response to that right now. And so there's things that we can point to to poke holes in stellar evolutionary theory, of course, and that's fine. But ideally, we would start some model building of our own in that regard and have something to replace that with. And So that's going to be an area for research in the coming years. All right, Dr. John Bob Gardner went next, and he talked about numerical simulation. And boy, this was another fascinating one. It was hard to grasp because I'm not a math guy, especially. And there was a lot going on. What was clear to me, though, the big thing that I wanted to, to um, point out is that especially after this presentation, like I, I think it was so insightful that it came up numerous times again in various different talks. And what I mean by that is just this observation that numerical simulation is a very, very powerful tool because it's a cost savings tool as well, where you don't need a huge compute power to do these simulations anymore. And in many industries, they've basically replaced the need for prototyping. And so you can come in as somebody who's an expert in numerical simulation can actually go into many different disciplines, run these simulations, and use them to help interpret the data using computers that advance many of these different ideas in different fields. And So it was fascinating to hear him talk about how numerical simulation works, how he spent his career doing it and was recognized for that, Um, the different models and things that he and his colleagues were responsible for coming up with that paved the way for big breakthroughs in numerical simulation. Fascinating stuff. Very cool. And to see that applied to creation research it's just amazing, and you may or may not know that Dr. John John Baumgartner ran the uh, ran the numerical simulations that were crucial in helping to come up with and to formulate the catastrophic plate tectonics theory that is um, widely regarded as the consensus flood model today. So very very fascinating, and uh, it was a great uh, it was a great time and a great presentation. A little long, but it was good. Okay, Dr. John Sanford went, and there's another one just so fascinating. I loved his presentation because what he did was basically took um, the work of his colleagues and pointed out some of the very influential and instrumental people in genetics research and creationism and some of the work that they've done and just highlighted some of the work that they have done. And uh, it was really a fascinating um, talk. He actually said that it might be one of the last public talks he gives on the subject. He's really focused on what's going on in schools and making sure that you know, gender theory and ideology that that, that stuff is, is being squared away. And so he's really focusing a lot of his time and efforts on that, which I think is very great. Um, one of the, the big takeaways I got from that is that genetic entropy, which you may or may not know, he wrote a book called Genetic Entropy. Um, and it's this idea uh, that, yeah, over time, things are degrading. Uh, Dr. Mike Behe's book, Darwin Deballs, talks a lot about uh, very similar things. And the idea being that, yeah, like it is far more likely that given any range of mutations that could happen to an organism, it is far more likely that even with the vast amount of time that is given, um, it's far more likely that an organism is going to devolve before it could ever build the constructive things that it needs to happen in order for it to evolve and to take on um, meaningful, productive change. And so very fascinating stuff. His work there, I think, is um, paramount. And he said that there's really not been any kind of good answer to come from the Uh, secular side of the aisle and and to debate this. So genetic entropy still stands. Um, And one of the big highlights that he mentioned is Dr. Rob Carter, and I think Dr. Nathaniel Jensen has done some work in this area as well. Uh, The idea that mitochondrially speaking, we have been able to identify a universal female ancestor uh, from that um, mitochondrial perspective. And of course, in the secular literature and, and such, we often refer to this as mitochondrial Eve. What's interesting is that it's been shown that the timeline, given the um, rates of mutation and all of that, um, the timeline is about uh, the biblical timeline, you know, accurate to about a 6,000-year human history on Earth. Okay, Dr. Kurt Wise. Boy, you talk about passion. Dr. Kurt Wise, Uh, I got to listen to him um, Tuesday night. I sat there. It was me and him and um, a few other writers and and you know guys who are doing videos and podcasts and such um, we talked for about four hours, and it was just so fascinating to hear what he had to say um, in many different things in many different areas. but for his talk, one of the things that he went through and he spent a lot of time on was just understanding that there's so much work to do in in understanding what f- what pre-flood communities would have looked like and it's important for us to answer some of these questions um, uh, because, of, again, lots of detail that it would be hard to go into here. Um, but the, basically the flood reshaped many, many ecosystems on Earth. And there are a lot of questions that we need to be able to answer as creationists that, given what we currently know about the flood and pre-flood world, are kind of difficult to answer. And so um, Dr. Wise has a history of being known for tackling hard problems head on. And um, that's one of the things that we were talking about during our time. That evening, um, you know, he was saying that, look, he, 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 tackling the hard problems has led to the most fruitful and most rewarding experiences. Um, you know, oftentimes he'll, he'll tackle a problem that looks like it's going to be really, really hard, but then solving that problem actually led to solving five to 10 other problems at the same time, rather than just starting with one of the smaller problems and working your way up. Tackle big things. And we can do that because we have faith that the word of God is true. Okay, we're not setting out to prove that the word of God is true. We believe the word of God is true. Now, let's figure out how God did it, right? Let's explore God's world. And instead of just trying to um, be apologists all the time and think about, well, how do we answer this little question? Or how do, we, how do we prove the Bible right on this point? Instead of that, let's just be in awe of God and God's glory and look around and say, oh, I wonder how we did that. And how, how did this little piece happen? And how did this little piece happen? I'm piecing it all together and forming a worldview picture. Ultimately, that's what model building creation is the essence of. That's what gets me excited about being a creationist. That's why I do this podcast. And so hearing him talk about that was very great. Okay, now (laughs) we get into another presentation by Dr. Matt McLean. Matt McLean has been on the podcast here before, one of the first episodes. And he's a paleontologist, amazing guy. He was given the task of um, talking about creation education he did a fantastic job and his presentation was a little depressing and he knew it would be um and but he, he was optimistic about it though just in the sense that look we're just trying to deal with reality figure out where we are now and then go from there so we're at this research conference people are presenting their papers people are talking about the current state of their field in creationism and it's like okay Let's say you're a young person, which there were some, and you're here and you're excited and you want to learn this. Where can you go to learn how to be a scientist and learn from a biblical perspective? Creation science studies. And again, it was a 30 minute presentation, so we can't cover everything here. But here's the point creation education is really, really lacking. Astronomy, paleontology, meteorology, Geology and even a few other smaller disciplines are all very underrepresented in the creationist university system. Okay? As far as going to college or university for what you want to learn, you can learn a lot about biology, a little bit about environmental science, and a few other things. But astronomy, paleontology, meteorology, and geology, very underrepresented in the creationist universities. And in fact, only Liberty University and Loma Linda, which is a Southern, um, a sub, excuse me, a Seventh-day Adventist university, have graduate degree programs for creationists. It's pretty hard to believe. Um, it's pretty hard to believe. So there is a need for research programs and degrees and teachers. And it's, it's really crazy to think about. So... um. Yeah, I mean, you can, of course, go to a secular university and get your training for these different areas. And that's probably, you know, that's what advice to, And a lot of these people have done that. But of course, that's, it's interesting, right? Because you kind of got to, you know, hide that you're a creationist and go through and basically pretend that you're not. And um, it's really wild. So we need to do more work if we want to be able to educate creation scientists in their fields in these different universities. Dr. Aaron Hutchinson was the last presenter and he is a chemist and he is actually a chemist there at Cedarville University and leads uh, that department and he made mention of the fact that we're going to need the ability to do lots of work outside the lab so a lot of chemistry work as you might imagine is done in controlled lab environments. The problem is is that in young age creationist research that doesn't really work. a lot of what needs to be done is out there in the field and of course lots of equipment is needed for that. And the big sort of punchline that sort of underlined um, so many of the different presentations, but especially Dr. Hutchinson's as well, is that we need funding. We need funding. Creationists need to be able to um, fund their projects. And without the ability to do that, we can't advance. And um, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. The last thing that I wrote down as a result of uh, Dr. Hutchinson's presentation was that more research is needed to understand isotope patterns in a catastrophist framework, right? So um, he made the point that, you know, we talk a lot about radiometric uh dating, but that stuff is like, it's very chemical in nature. It's like a, a chemist is the perfect person to help study some of those things, but we need to be out there in the field and, and and doing that sort of research to understand isotope patterns and more things as it relates to radiometric dating. So the chemistry people have a lot to contribute here. And, um it'd be pretty important that we start to get more people trained in those disciplines as well. Okay, so those are my notes that I took from just the public presentation of the ICC. And that is only a handful of the notes that I took. I took way more notes than that, recorded everything. And so I'm just telling you, uh, you should really make it a, a point to try to get up there, at least for the public talks. You can learn a lot just from the public talks and sort of mingling with people and going to the different tables and learning from people, um, having good conversations. Really, really fascinating and really fun. Okay, so I have three big takeaways that I want to share with you from this conference, okay? Number one is this. So the future is bright, okay? The future is very bright. I got to meet up with a lot of young um, writers and students and just people who are uh, so interested in the work that's going on and so passionate about, uh, creation and and so um so tired of, of only answering questions to satisfy apologetic questions um, just people who are really into the research and really want to model build and build the creation model together and um yeah, there were a lot more gray and bald heads than you know than young people unfortunately, um I'd like to see the tide start to turn on that, but Just the ones who were there, it's really encouraging. It's super fascinating and encouraging to see people um, pursuing these passions and going into these fields. Um, There were quite a few of the presenters who got up and made a joke, something along the lines of being able to count the number of researchers in their field on one or two hands, usually one. Not good. We need more. We need more. So if you're listening and you have kids or – you know, you are a young person listening. Let me encourage you to go into this, these fields. If you're interested in science, if you're interested in theology, man, look at these fields. Look into going into becoming a creationist researcher and helping to solve some of these big problems. The future is bright, and I am just really excited about what I've seen. And uh, I think more people need to join now. Okay, number two, and I mentioned this a moment ago, is that creationists need money. <laughs> <laughs> creationists need money. <laughs> I am amazed by what has been done to this point in the building of the creation model with very little funding and just with some private conversations that I had, honestly, the amount of funding out there is less than I realized. Um, It's real small, kind of bureaucratic, and it's a little bit hard for people to get what they need in order to do what they need and want to do to advance the creation model. So I can't say anything about this yet further, but I... You know, I'm a business guy. I love business. I'm not rich or anything, uh, but I have, uh, you know, a business or two and, um, and maybe three. And uh, it is like I love business. I love making money and using money for the glory of God. Those are fun things for me. And so I have some ideas up my sleeve and some things in store. And I'm talking with some key people to see about some ways that we can get more funding for research into the hands of creationists. And so if you'll pray with me about that. I would certainly appreciate it, and I'll divulge more details and how you can get involved uh, when the time is appropriate. Until then, be in prayer for that uh, effort, and I think we can make some huge strides toward getting people the kind of money and funding that they need to do the work that they need and want to do. So pray with me about that, if you will. And then finally, uh, the last takeaway is another one that it's like, I already know this, and you probably already know this, but going to a conference like that was just so great to see it for myself in person and, and experience it. They are extremely intelligent and accomplished creationists. I mean, you could not leave that place thinking that these, is, you know, these are just a, a bunch of Bible-thumping cavemen who just have no idea what they're talking about, don't know their heads from a hole in the ground. These are people that are very skilled, very highly trained, very well-decorated and recognized in their own individual fields of experience. And I am just thrilled. Like, it really, uh, it really bugs me when I hear people talk about, like, even fellow Christians talk about how these people are or this or that or uneducated or dishonest or all of that. You know, um, what I saw in those rooms was tremendous amounts of skill, tremendous amounts of passion, and um, a tremendous dedication to the truth of creation. And it'd be hard to walk away from a conference like that thinking that these people were not intelligent not sincere, not very widely recognized for the work that they do. And, um, while I have never been to a flat earth conference, let's just say it's probably a lot different <laughs> than what I experienced and saw there. So sorry if you're a flat earther, um, but the earth isn't flat. So anyway, this is not about that. Um, I'm excited about it. I think the future is good. I'm really like, it, it's really cool to see how excited people are and, um, how many smart people there are there. And, um, yeah, I can't wait for the next one. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to try to have a booth set up at the next one and even be a little bit more um, involved and such. I've got five more years to plan for it, so I'm excited about that. Maybe I'll meet some of you there. Listen, five years is a lot of time to get stuff done, and so I'm excited to see what the next five years um, holds and uh, what it will be like at the next uh, International Conference on Creationism in Cedarville, so very exciting time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Winsome Creationist. I hope this gets you excited about the opportunities and about the things that are going on. um, It did get me excited. That is for sure. So I will see you guys in the next episode a couple weeks from now. You guys take care. God bless. Be good.